Grab your Bibles, if you will, Ephesians chapter 1. This morning, uh, a couple of things before we get into the text, though. Um, just things of kind of explanation, know where we're at, know where we're headed through this book. Uh, this is a letter written by Paul. We talked about this last week. We read Acts 19 and 20 about Paul's relationship to this church in Ephesus. But just kind of a reminder and maybe uh, some other things that we didn't talk about last week. This is a letter written by Paul to a church in Ephesus. Right, like, and, and here's kind of the overview, the, the layout, the outline, whatever you want to call it, of this book. The first three chapters is, is all about the gospel. Actually, the whole book's all about the gospel. But the first three chapters are going to be a lot of theology, a lot of these, these kind of heady intellectual conversations that Paul's going to have. And so that's going to be chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then we get to chapter 4, and he, he gives us this therefore, and we'll get there at some point, but he gives us this therefore in chapter 4, and, and this kind of this transition from theological, intellectual argument almost to this is what the gospel looks like in everyday life. Okay, so, so I'm not apologizing for anything I'm about to say, but, but the first three chapters, it might not be very practical at times. Like, you might be thinking, like, what's my take-home this week, or what's the one thing I need to apply to my life this week? And that's not what Paul's getting at in the first three chapters. So, so we might have things that, that here's a takeaway, or here's something I haven't thought of before, or, or some of these things. But it's not going to be like, here's four steps to becoming a better father. Like, that's not chapters one through three. Chapters 1 through 3 is going to be the gospel and what it means and what it has accomplished in our lives and what God is doing, not just on an individual level, but at a corporate level, at this church level. Here's what the gospel is at work presently doing. Okay, so that's kind of an uh, uh, overview, outline, layout. Okay, uh, as we dive into this text this morning, a couple more specifics. Verse 3 to verse 14 is one sentence. Not in your translation, probably, but in the Greek, Paul writing, that's just one sentence. Okay, so, so for us, like, that's our goal is to get through one sentence this morning. Like, I don't want to break it up. I don't want to, but we could spend a whole month on this one sentence, right? But one sentence, we're going to try and get through it in, in one shot this morning. Second thing, this is a poem. Okay, so this is a Jewish, written in Greek, but it would be a Jewish poem. So as Paul is writing this, we gotta understand the context. Who is Paul? He's a Jewish, he's Jew, he's a Pharisee, he's, he's all in on this before his conversion. So he understands the Jewish culture. Who's he writing to? He's writing to the church in Ephesus, which is what? Jews and Gentiles. Okay, so, so this is a Jewish poem, which means what? Which means we have to think and understand a little bit of the Jewish context. Like if we don't understand the Jewish context, then we're gonna miss a, a big portion of what Paul's trying to to trying to say here in this Jewish style poem. Okay, so as we would go through this poem, there's a couple things that we need to, we need to see. Uh, I just want to point out before we read. First one is going to be the use of pronouns for some of us. It's like, man, it's been 20 or 30 years since I had to like figure out what a pronoun is in English class. Uh, but you can do it. Like we can handle it. It's not too hard. Um, Every one of these pronouns, just, just as you would look through this, uh, is going to be we. It's going to be us. It's going to be plural. Okay, even when we get to the word you. It's, it's the Greek word is a, a second person plural pronoun. So what does that mean? It means if you're in the south, you're going to say y'all. If you're in the north, it's going to be like you or you guys or you wins or whatever they say up there. Like, but it's not just a you individual. It's a all y'all. Like, like I might even say that this morning. Who knows? I mean, I just did, but I might even read it that way. Why? Because the picture is what? The picture is this collective group. And okay, so, so, Ephesians, right? It's about the gospel. Is the gospel for the individual? Yes and amen. Like it is, God has worked in my life through the gospel on an individual level. But part of Paul's writing here is more than just this idea of, of, of an individual level. It's also at this corporate, like together church level. 
Okay, we're not going to read it today, but we'll get there at some point. But Ephesians 3 talks about this mystery. And a big theme underneath the gospel of, of Ephesians, here's what Paul's saying, is, here's the gospel. A big you know, sub-point under that is that the gospel brings unity. And what does that look like? It looks like the church. And so Ephesians 3 is going to talk about here is Jews and Gentiles coming together. And this was planned from the, before the foundations of the world, that the church would exist and that these two entities would t- come together in unity. Right, so, so here's the picture of the church, here's this picture of unity. So as we would walk through 3 through 14, am I saying that none of this is applicable to the individual? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we so often focus on the individual that we miss the, the church aspect, we miss the corporate aspect. Okay, uh, last thing, I think, um, we're going to see this phrase a lot. This is actually last week when we read through uh, Ephesians 1, 1 through Ephesians 6, 24. When we read through it, we had our takeaways in discussion group. And, and I think it was Joel mentioned the words in him or in Christ or in Jesus were mentioned a lot. They were mentioned a lot in just this section. Like they're mentioned a lot in the book of Ephesians. But just in our passage this morning, it is mentioned a lot of in him. Okay, so I just want to give a little bit of, of not a complete lesson on this, but a little bit of clarification, hopefully. Who is Paul? He's a Jew, writing to Jewish believers with Gentiles. When you see the phrase, in him, over and over and over again, as a Jewish person, what would be some of your thoughts? What would you be thinking? Well, well maybe let's just rewind just a little bit. Let's, like, let's just pick one of these. Um, I'm not going to be able to find them. They're all over the place. Now that I just randomly stare at the, my Bible, I'm not going to see them. Um, just as he chose us in him. Okay, So we'll just take that one. If you're a Jew and you, you were chosen in him, how were you chosen as God's chosen people group? How were you chosen? Were you specifically chosen? Or was it God who chose Abraham back in Genesis 12? So, this, so then what would be the connection? The connection would be, how do I know that I'm in the chosen people of God? I know I'm in the chosen people of God. Why? Because Abraham is my father. Because I am, in some way, in Abraham. So an Old Testament Jewish person says, this is the people of God. I know I'm part of the people of God. Why? Because I'm in Abraham. Okay, so, so we're going to see this idea of in him, and in Christ, and in Jesus, and in the beloved, and in, in, in. And what's the picture in a Jewish mind? The picture is like, I once was in Abraham, and they still are, but now there's this picture I'm in Jesus. Like, like he is now the, I don't want to make this totally parallel, but he is like this new Abraham, if you will. And I am now in him. So, how, back to that one I just picked up. Uh, we are chosen in him. How do we know we're chosen? If we are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are chosen. If you are in Christ, these things are true in your life. Okay, so I'm going to try not to be annoying, which is normally a goal I have in life. Um, but I'm going to try not be annoying as we read 14 verses. I'm going to miss some, and I'm just—it's probably not going to go well. But I'm going to try and emphasize in Him when I read it, or in Jesus, or in because you're going to see it a lot. And I'm going to try and emphasize the plural pronouns. And again, I'll probably miss some. And for those of you that love like proofreading, you want to prove me wrong—that's fun. Um, just don't miss the point of the text. Okay, here we go. Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption 
through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you, you all, all y'all, you guys, also, after listening to this message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, y'all were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view through redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. All right, we're going to start diving in right here in, in verse 3. Verse 3, I, I think, it's my understanding, is, is going to be the takeaway of this passage. Like I said, we're not going to have too many takeaways. Here's the takeaway. Here's, here's the point, I think, of this whole poem that, that Paul would write to this church in Ephesus, which is a very beautiful poem and, and just an amazing uh, poem. But what's the point? The point is here, right in the first four words in my translation, blessed be the God. Like, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like, what's the point of this poem? The point of this poem is to stir up in us praise and blessing and adoration and these, these emotions for the God who saved us. Like, we're going to talk about the gospel a lot throughout the book of Ephesians. And what's the point of this poem? The point of this poem is that we would leave here praising God. Okay, here's my fear when we talk about Ephesians 1. Okay, Ephesians 1, if you don't know what I'm talking about when I say these things, praise God for that. Uh, just... Continue not to know. Uh, but Ephesians 1 can become kind of this controversial division because how do we interpret certain words and how do we apply them to salvation and what do we do with this and what do we not do with this? And then the church becomes divided because I think we interpret it this way and these people say, I interpret it that way. And we take the book of Ephesians as a whole, which says what? The gospel unifies. And then we read Ephesians 1 and this paragraph, this passage, this sentence, so that's going to say what? It's going to say we should praise God. And if we walk out of here saying, hey, this is my viewpoint, my theological system of how I view things, like we've missed the whole point. Like we've, we've utterly missed everything. And so, so it's easy to fall into the, what does this word mean? And how does this fit into my theological system? And yet that's not the point of it. Doesn't, no one in Ephesus was reading this thinking like, ooh, yeah, that was a good point, Paul. That's a good argument to make. That wasn't the point of this letter. The point of this letter and the point of this poem is that we would bless God, that we would praise his name, and we're going to see that phrase over and over again. And we'll actually end with that. So that's where we're headed, uh, towards this idea of praising God. But what does he say? He says we're going to bless be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has blessed us corporately as a church, yes, individually, but there's this corporate level, this church level. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Like, let's just stop and think about it for a second. It's corporate level. He, God, has blessed us as a church with everything that we need. Period. Done. End of story. Like, it's so easy to be tempted to be like, man, if we just had a cool hype guy that could really, like, get our Instagram going, like, man, that would really, that's what the church needs, right? It's really tempted to be like, man, if we just had a better sound system, if we just had a bigger sign, if we just had a nicer building, if we just had our own, like, it's so easy to fall into a trap that says, hey, if we just had this, guess what? Then the church would grow or explode or be awesome or whatever we want. And yet, Paul says here, no, no, the church, you have been given everything you need. Gospel community, because of Christ, has everything they need to, to build the kingdom of God. The church in China has everything they need. The church in Afghanistan has everything that they need. Why? Because of Christ, because of the work that he has done, because of his death and resurrection for us. 
So in this world that seems to be getting more and more evil and further and further away from God, what's the temptation? The temptation is to think that the church is slowly dying, that the church is frail, that the church is weak, that maybe the church isn't going to make it. And yet Paul, writing to a church in Ephesus, while he's in prison for preaching the gospel, says, no, 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 the church has everything it needs. Like it is lacking nothing. You as a church can go forward and make a difference for the glory of God. Like, that is what God has done. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. He has, he has not holding anything back. He doesn't have a carrot out in front of us saying, hey, hey, you got this far, good, keep going. Like, uh, uh, there's more rewards coming. There's more. No, he has given us everything we need right now without holding any of it back, as we're going to see in just a second. So what do we do? What do we do with a God who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings? Is we bless his name, right? We would praise him. Look in verse 4. Uh, we're going to get into some of the specifics. What is it? What does these blessings look like? What are the blessings for those who are in Christ? Verse 4, just as he chose us in him. Like, like God chose us specifically on this corporate level. God chose the church. Before the foundations of the world, he said there's going to be this, this group, this entity, this, this togetherness, people coming together from all tongues and tribes and nations that are going to worship me. And he says, this is what I've done before the foundation of the world was even set. And why did he choose the church? What was his purpose in this? Look at the text. He chose us in him. Why? Uh, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Just turn over one page. If you, for my Bible, it's one page. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water through the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Like, what's the picture here? The picture is that, that we as a church, we are not holy and blameless. Right? Like, like if, you, if you ask somebody from outside church, not just our church, but just outside of church, doesn't attend church at all, and you said, hey, give me two words that describe the American church today. Just give me two words. Right? Their, their, their vocabulary probably wouldn't come up with holy and blameless, but I don't even think they'd come up with those ideas. Right? The church today, like we describe the church today, even our church at times, like, like there might be hypocritical, there might be arrogant, there might be judgmental, there might be a lot of words, but I don't think holy and blameless are the two words. And yet Ephesians 5 is saying what? It's saying, no, 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 Jesus is at work sanctifying us. Jesus is the one who's doing the work to grow us so that we might be holy and blameless. And there's a coming day when the church will stand before the, the Savior of the church, the head of this church, and we will be standing there holy and blameless. Like, it's not us that can do that, though. Like, like we don't just work harder in order to be holy and blameless. No, it's all because we are in Christ. So for those of you who are in Christ, you are holy and blameless in his sight. This church is holy and blameless in his sight. Why? Because of what Christ has done for us. So again, what do we do with that? It was we would praise his name. We would bless his name. It's not about me. It's not even about us. It's about him. Verse 5, uh, maybe I should say this, I should have said it earlier, I'll say it right now. Because this is one sentence, uh, some translations, you're going to put a, put a like my, my translation, in love uh, for verse 5. It starts in verse 4. So if you feel like the periods are in the wrong spot, that's just what translations are had to try and do with one long sentence. Uh, so anyway, that's why sometimes it seems like the verses are broken up weird. Anyway, back to verse 5. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. 
Like, what's the picture here? Like, like we haven't got here yet, so we're cheating because we have the whole book of Ephesians in front of us. But what do we just say? Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Like, like, no one walks up to a dead person and says, hmm, I think I want to adopt them. Like, there's no value in that. There's no joy in that. And yet, what does Christ do? What does the Father do? Is he sees us and our deadness, and he says, I, want, I don't want to just want to make them a slave. I just don't want to make them uh, some, some person below me. No, I want to adopt them. I want to bring them into my family. Like, like mine should be blown. As Romans, ones would, Romans 1 would say, that, that we thought at one point we could become a better God than God himself. And in fact, we started to worship creation rather than creator. And we exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And like, like that is what we have all done at some point in our life. And yet God would look at us and what would he say? He says, no, I, don't, I, like, like I know you rebelled. I know you're against me, but I want you to be part of my family. I want this church to be part of the family. I want to, be, I want to adopt you as sons. How? Through Jesus Christ. Again, it's not our work, it's his work. This next phrase, I think, is an awesome phrase. It says there, according to the kind intention of his will. Why did he adopt us? He adopted us uh, because of in love. He is God. He is love. But there's also this phrase here, according to the kind intention of his will. That idea of kind intention is just the word delight. Like God delights in you. God delights in this church, this local body. God delights in you. He doesn't delight in a future version of you. Right? It's not that he's going to delight in you when you, when you quit that bad habit. He's not going to like waiting to delight in you until you start reading your Bible more. He's not waiting to delight in you until you, you reach the criteria. He's not waiting to delight in this church, this gospel community of Sarasota. He's not waiting to delight in us until we reach a certain size. He's not waiting for us to, to delight in us until we get like all these things that look more churchy going on. Like, he's not waiting. He presently is delighting in us. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. Like he, we do not disgust him. We do not disappoint him. Uh, he doesn't regret saving us. He doesn't regret calling us. He doesn't regret adopting us. He actually delights in us for those who are in Christ. Like mind should be blown. And we're not even halfway through this text yet. Like God, you are an amazing God. This is beyond a comprehension. Verse six, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Again, what do we do with the fact that we've been adopted? What do we do with the fact that we've been chosen? What do we do with the fact that God delights in us is that we would go about and we would praise his name. We'd go about and, and tell other people about this grace. That word grace is just God's favor. He has poured out his favor on us. And so what should we do with that? We should praise his name for that. We should tell other people about that. But what does Paul say in this text? How was this grace given to us? It says there in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us. We don't earn this. We don't pay it back later. Like he freely bestowed. He freely gives us his grace. And how did he do that? He does it through Christ. Like it is through the work of Christ that we get this free grace that is poured out into our lives. We get this free grace of, of him delighting in us, of him adopting us. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. That word redemption is the, is the, the idea of a payment. There's a payment involved. Our buying, our, our freedom, our life, our bring, being brought back from the dead was not free. There was a price to be paid. And Paul tells us in the text, what was the price? The price was Jesus' blood. 
So, so for us who were rebels against God, who wanted nothing to do with God, who thought, in fact, we could be better than God than God himself, and we want to be in control and not God being in control, and so we rebel against him, we do our own thing, and yet what does God do for us is he would send his own son to die in our place and shed his blood so that we could be adopted by him. Like, like this does not make sense that God would do this for us. What does this redemption accomplish in our lives? Second half there, verse 7. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Like we, we just stop and think over a, a week's time. How, how many times did, did I think I could do it better than God? Right? How many times did I think I could handle my marriage apart from the power of God? How many times did I think I could, I could love my wife as Christ loved the church in my own power? How many times did I, did I even try to love, Christ, love my wife as Christ loved the church? Like, how many times did I fail in that? How many times did I lose my temper? How many times did I think something I shouldn't have thought? How many times did I watch something I shouldn't have watched? How many times did I blow it? How many times, how many times did I speak evil of the person that just has been driving me nuts lately? Like, how many times in just one week span have, have I sinned and, and done these things? And yet, according to Paul, through the Holy Spirit, because of the blood of Christ, there's forgiveness of our trespasses. And the idea here isn't just certain sins, not just certain trespasses, not just those in the past. Now you've got to make up for it in the future and earn it. No, the idea here is past, present, and future. Like every sin was nailed to the cross. Every sin is covered by the blood. Like you can't out the blood of Jesus Christ. Like, praise God, bless his name for sending Jesus that we might have this redemption, we might have this forgiveness of our sins. And he says there at the end of verse 7, according to the riches of his grace. Again, it's not because we earned it. It's not because we deserved it. It's not because, because we're so special. It's not because we're some awesome person worth saving. No, it's because of his grace and because of his favor. Read verse 8, which he lavished on us. That word lavished. It means overflowing, uh, like too much, out of control. So this is the best illustration. It's kind of silly, I know, but it's the best one I can think of. Uh, if you send one of my kids, who I won't name, and hopefully they're not listening too closely because now they're going to do it every time we go out to eat. Uh, but if you send one of my kids up to a restaurant to fill up their own drink, okay, I can guarantee you it's not staying in the cup. Right? I can pretty much guarantee you the button will be held and the bubbles and the fizz will start coming to the top. And in my brain, it's like, okay, that's enough. Like, we're good. Right? And they're going to keep holding the button and it's going to get to the top and the bubbles are going to fall over and then the drink's going to fall over and they're not letting go. Like, they're just going to keep holding it there until there's a huge mess. And you as a parent, me as a parent thinks what? Like, this is out of control. This is over the top. This is ridiculous. Like, what are you thinking? And yet that is what this word lavish means when it talks about God's grace towards us. Like when we understand it, we would look at God and be like, what are you thinking? Like, like, God, this is too much. This is out of control. This is ridiculous. The amount of grace that you would give to us. Like that's what Paul's saying. And again, I feel like, like growing up in church, there's this idea, like I understand the word grace. I know I'm a sinner and, and we can just easily blow through this passage. And yet Paul's trying to remind us through this poem, the, the, the church in Ephesus, through this poem, like, no, here's what God has done. Here how, here's how he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. He has lavished on us his grace. Second half there, verse 8, in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Mystery, um, not to sound redundant, mystery to us sometimes becomes too mysterious. Here's what it means in the Bible. It, it was something that wasn't known, 
but now is. So, so in the Old Testament, no idea of the church, no idea of, of Jesus. Like, you know, there's prophecies about Jesus coming, but they didn't fully grasp it. They didn't really get that Jesus, like, okay, so there's certain things that are just kind of covered, they're kind of hidden, and then we get to the New Testament, and guess what? They're revealed. Okay, that's what it means. So, so when we read this, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. What is, what is he saying? He's saying that God has, has let us know kind of this insider information of what his will is, what he's trying to accomplish. It was hidden before times, not totally, but kind of, and, and now we get a clear picture of what it is. Okay, what is his will then? Like, what is God's will? He's going to tell us. He's going to use a lot of words. We'll read them, uh, but we're not necessarily going to talk about all of them. But here's uh, what God's will is that he has made known to us. Okay, According to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. Okay, What is his will? His will is that all things will be summed up or brought underneath the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. So we sang about it this morning. We sang, this is my father's world. And it talks about how he is going to rule and reign. Like what a perfect song to fit this text. Like what is the will of God? The will of God is that Jesus will rule and reign for all eternity. And everything, this whole universe, we were brought back to how it's supposed to be. Right? Romans 8 would say that the whole universe is groaning with, with sin. It's been marred and broken by sin. It's groaning. And what does the gospel accomplish? So the gospel doesn't just accomplish things in our own life individually. It doesn't just accomplish things corporately at a church level. Like it restores the whole universe back to itself, or back to God. Right? Like, like it's going to be restored. It's going to be made new again. And we're going to have the king of the universe, the rightful king of the universe. Right? We can turn on any news station you want. Um, I don't, we don't watch news, so, it's not going to be a great illustration from my standpoint because I don't even know who's who anymore. Uh, but uh, you can turn on the news and there's probably things happening all over the world. Russia's doing their thing right now. You're worried about things that are happening in Afghanistan and Middle East things are going on. Like, and, and there's people who are going to do what? They're going to rise up and take power. And maybe they're going to take too much power. They're going to take too much authority. And what does that do for us? It worries us. Right? Like, like we, we can wonder, like, what is this country doing? And, and is this going to make war happen? And why are we sending troops here? And, and we have all these concerns and all these problems. And yet, what does God say? God says, he's not necessarily concerned with those things. Why? Because he knows the end of the story. He's writing the story. And how's this story going to end? It's going to end with the rightful king of the universe in his place. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Like, that's the end of the story, and he's made that known to us. So what should we do with the fact that we know God's will, and we know the end of the story? We should praise his name. God, if I was the one writing the story, man, this would not go well. But, but I'm not. He's the one, and it's his will, and his will will always be accomplished. Verse 11, In him also we have obtained an inheritance. This phrase, obtained an inheritance, it can, it can be taken in the Greek and be taken as either we have an inheritance. So, so Peter would write about that, about there's an eternity and heaven and things coming, and, and so there's an inherit, we have this inheritance. Okay? Or, uh, the way the Greek's written, it could say that we are the inheritance, that we ourselves are the inheritance. We, the word inheritance could also mean this idea of heritage. It can mean valued possession. Okay, looking at the text, we'll get, we'll, we'll kind of keep going, and I think you'll see this. But, but I think I, for verse 11, I'm going to interpret it more on the we are the inheritance. We are the valued possession. 
So, so what, what does it say here? It says, we are this inheritance. Then what does it say in verse 11? Having been predestined according to the purpose uh, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Okay, so, so he predestined beforehand that there would be this entity, this, this, this group of people called the church that would be made up of all tongues, tribes, and nations. And he says, we're going to bring these people together. And what does he, how does he view this people? He views it as a valued possession. He views it as an inheritance to himself. Like you think about it, like, like the creator God of this universe who can speak stars into existence, who can make galaxies and, and do all this without even thinking, would say, here's my valued possession. It's the church. It's the group of people that would meet together and do life together and sing praises to his name and interact with his word and go on mission for the sake of the kingdom. Like, that's what he values. And again, what uh, is our response? Our response is, is unbelief, right? Like, God, God, we... I know me. <laughs> There's not much here to value. You look at you look at churches across our country, you look at even our own church, like like in a loving, most loving way possible. There's not much here to value. We're a bunch of broken people. And yet what does God say? He says, No, no, no. This group of people from all tongues, tribes, and nations that would come together and worship my name, that is what I value. Uh, let's keep going. Verse twelve. To the end, that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. What is that phrase? Uh, what, who are we talking about here, right? To the end, we who are the first to hope in Christ. Okay, here's what I think he's talking about. Okay, it's in the context of, remember the context. It's written to the church in Ephesus. Who's in the church in Ephesus? You've got a group of Jewish people. You've got a group of Gentiles. Okay, so who were the first people to put their hope in Jesus Christ? Well, if you go back to, to the beginning of the church, Acts 2, Pentecost, that's a Jewish holiday taking place in Jerusalem. Who were the 3,000 people that got saved that day? Most likely all of them were Jews, or a lot of them at least were, were of Jewish descent. Okay, so who were the first people to put their hope in Jesus Christ? Probably the Jews. Second thing, Romans 1, what does it say? It says the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. To who first? To the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying, God's chosen people, like you have been, been included in this, in this, in Christ. Like, like you're no longer, I mean, you are still God's chosen people, don't get me wrong, but like, like there's this new thing, this church, and you are being brought into it through the praise of his glory. Like, like your salvation, uh, chosen people of God is, is for the, the glory of God. That you would make much of him. Okay, but then look at verse 13. In him you, or all y'all, you guys, in him, you all also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. Okay, so who are the you? The you here would be the Gentiles. Okay, so, so what happens when someone who's not of the, the chosen people of God, back to uh, Genesis 12 with Abraham, what happens when that person would come and believe the gospel? This is awesome. Verse 13, you, you hear the gospel of your salvation, you believe, and then what happens when you believe? Those of you who are outside of Israel, what happens when you believe? You all were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. What does that word sealed mean? Like we think of like sealing an envelope maybe, and, and it's somewhat true. But a seal in, in Bible times was, was this hot wax type substance, and you take a ring or something that you would put your mark on, and you would mark an object with it. In a kind of weird way, it would be like branding your cattle. Like, here's my mark on this animal. What does it signify? It signifies possession. You, who were, who were not Jews, who were not God's chosen people, what happens when you believed you are marked by the Holy Spirit as God's possession? 
You are not an outsider. You are not far away. You are not a slave. You are not distant. You who believe, who are in Christ, though you are not God's chosen people, are now marked by his Holy Spirit uh, as God's own possession. Like, Like how often in my life, how often in your life, do we beat ourselves up over this? God must be so disappointed in me. God must, God must hate the fact that I'm still struggling. Like I've been saved for a couple of decades now. Why do I still struggle? Like, like God must be looking down at me like, oh, I can't believe he hasn't gotten it yet. And yet, what does this text say? This text says, no, no, no. For those of you who are not the chosen people of God, like, like you might feel, sub- in their context, you might not, you might feel inferior. You might not feel as good as some of these Jewish other, you know, other Jewish people in the church are. And what does he say? No, 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 no. Like God marks you. Not with wax, not with a ring, but with his own Holy Spirit. You are his. And what does he say? That this Holy Spirit of promise is given as a pledge of our inheritance. What does that mean? It means that he is protecting us until the day that we're presented to the Savior. Like we are his forever, for all eternity. With a, with a view to redemption of God's own possession. Again, here's this thought that we are his and we are his inheritance. And, and of all the things on this, in this universe, what does he value? He values his church. And so what do we do with this information? We do with what Paul would end this poem with in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. I've said this before, I'll say it again, probably a hundred times over. Man, we find a new coffee shop that we like. Man, that thing will be on Instagram, Twitter feeds, Facebook. That will be the conversation starter for all our conversations for the next couple weeks. Well, anytime someone wants to meet us, man, I know this great new coffee shop. Let me tell you about it. Right? Uh, not to pick on anybody in particular because I play the same dumb game, but, but Facebook has just kind of exploded over the same dumb app about putting words in, or letters in the right order. Like all of a sudden, we just got to tell everybody that I, I scored really good on Wordle today. Right? And, and yet, here's a God of the universe that says, because of Christ, because of my son, your sins are forgiven, you're chosen, you're predestined, you're adopted, like all of these things. And what do we do with that? We just kind of remain silent, right? Like, like a cup of coffee might, might taste good for a couple minutes, but isn't, some of you are going to disagree. It does not change your life. It doesn't. Wordle doesn't change your life. No matter if you beat it in one try or ten, well, you don't get ten tries. So how many tries you get? Like, you don't, it doesn't change your life. The new TV show does not change your life. And yet we are so quick to sing the praises of these things that will not change our life. We are so quick to sing the praises of how much we love our new car that will break down at some point. And what, what, is, what does Paul say here? He says over and over again, verse 3, blessed be the God. In verse 5 and 6, he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Like we, as people who are in Christ, who have experienced the spiritual blessings that God has given us in Christ, what should be our response? It should be to praise his name. Like if, if we were in the church of Ephesus at this moment, as, the, as we heard the letter for the first time, I would assume that we would have been moved to tears by this beautiful poem of what God has done for us. Like look at, at who our God is. He is amazing. He is awesome. And I want to sing my praises to his name. So for us this morning, how do we do that? I mean, we can come here and, and, and thank you, Austin, for leading the music. Like, we can come here and we can sing praises to his name as, as the gospel made visible in this gospel community that we have. Like, praise God for that, okay? But, but what do we do tomorrow morning? 
What do, what do we do on Friday night that we can say, hey, there's something more valuable than that coffee house I found. There's something more valuable than, than the new whatever, whatever I just bought that I want to tell everybody. Like, like, how do we sing his praises? How do we declare the praises of his grace and of his glory to those that are around us throughout the week? Right? Because that's, that's what he's calling us to do. Like, like, that's not even what he's calling us to do, I feel like. I feel like that's just the, the proper response to understanding this text. Like, if we understand what God has done for us in verses 3 through 14, I don't, it should be easy, right? It should be easy to be like, hey, I, I got someone I got to introduce you to. He has changed my life way more than that caramel macchiato would ever change your life. Like, this has literally changed my life. Let me tell you about it. And so what's the problem? Well, you know, there's fear of man. That's a big problem, right? That's, that's, one of my, that's one of my main struggles. Okay, but I think there's also a failure to understand the text. There, there becomes this ho-humness to, to the text and the words of grace and forgiveness. And, and we just don't realize how, how much God did for us. We don't realize the spiritual blessing that he's given us and that we lack nothing. We don't realize that he is the victor, that he will rule and reign for all eternity. We even sang about that a little bit this morning. Like, like I can rejoice and I can be glad. I, I don't have to go through this world in sadness. Why? Because I know the end of the story. I know how it's going to turn out, and it's going to not just turn out okay. It's going to turn out perfectly with the rightful king in, in his place. So, so what can I do? I can go and serve that king knowing I'm on the winning side. So what does that include? It includes that I'm going to praise his name. I'm going to tell other people about him. I'm going to brag on my God for what he has done for me. So may that be true of us. Right? May we be people who, who don't just believe this text, but, but would believe it in such a way that it would motivate us to go tell other people about it. This is the greatest news on planet Earth, and, and yet we're hesitant to share it. So maybe we grasp it, and as we grasp it, maybe we take this message to other people that we come into contact with. All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll have uh, a little break before we jump back into the discussion group. God, we thank you that you have blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. God, we don't deserve any of this text. God, we don't, we don't deserve your blessing. We don't deserve to be chosen as your people. We don't deserve to, to be adopted as your children. God, you delight in us. God, God, we struggle just to delight in each other at times. God, it is, it is mind-blowing to think that the creator of this universe would value us as his possession. And God, you have. You've saved us. You've forgiven us. you redeemed us. All through the name of Jesus Christ. So, so God, we want to thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for being submissive and, 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 and surrendering your life to, to, to die on the cross for us. Spirit, thank you for stealing us. Thank you for marking us as God's possession and holding on to us until that day that we see our Savior face to face. God, I pray that you'd help us to be blown away by this passage. I pray that the truths of this passage would, would become alive to us, that your spirit would work in our hearts and, and, and show us of, of the truths of this passage, and that as we understand this passage, that our praise for you would grow and grow and grow. That you would be the, the person we want to talk to. You would be the person we want to talk about. You would be the one we want to introduce to others, uh, that your praise would continually be in our mouth. So God, help us. Help us as we walk through this book of Ephesians that we might continually learn more and more about what you have done and blessing us through Christ. We pray all these things in his name.